Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Horsemeat Disco is a club night and DJ collective whose legend is bigger than just about any niche you could stuff it in. Originally based out of the Eagle in South London more than a decade ago, the party was the city's earliest and largest night to bring back the sound of New York's bathhouses and gay clubs in the 1970s. The music, along with the inclusive and enormously fun vibe, struck a chord both in and out of the gay scene, attracting an enviable roster of guest DJs. A series of seminal compilations, a New York residency, a wholly unique party at Glastonbury, and hordes of DJ gigs have turned horsemeat disco into a decidedly international concern. Stephen Titmus touched in with one half of the group, Luke Howard and James Hillard, at our London office recently to hear the magnificent story of the queer party for everyone. So, going back to the start, because of course you were all four individual peoples, but how did you all meet initially? Okay, uh, it's quite a long, complicated, long-winded story. I, I think the first people to meet was maybe me and Severino. I was living in Italy at the time, and I was working for a record label called Irma Records out there. And he came in one day, and we kind of hit it off straight away, uh, got chatting. He was living in London, I'd obviously moved to Italy from London, and he was living in Brixton, that's where I was living, so we kind of like... You know, created this kind of nice bond quite quickly because we lived in the same neighbourhood. We sort of arranged to meet up when I came back to London. And in the meantime, he'd met Jim Stanton. Me, Jim and Sevi all ended up going out one night to a Rooty concert down in Brixton. And then like, that was where me and Jim met. And that's kind of really where, you know, I started to talk about um, clubs and stuff. And whilst all this was going on, my favourite club in the world at the time was where Luke Howard used to play at. And that was Queer Nation at Substation. How did, how did you meet everyone, Luke? I met Severino because I used to work at Defected Records and he used to come and get promos from Guy Williams who was doing the club promotions and so I kind of knew him there although he said I was quite moody with him but I, it was probably because I was so stressed out but I, that's how I first met him and I used to see him around and Jim I actually asked out on a date when I met him first I met him at the end and we went and had dinner but we never took it any further than that but then Jim started working at Crash he started sort of working in club promotions and I was working at QN at Queer Nation and he sort of knew me so I used to see him around and I guess I met you at, at Queer Nation as well at, at Substation back sort of in the I suppose it was the late 90s was it mm-hmm. yeah and were you all really into disco at this point or is this something that came a bit later perhaps I think I can safely say for me and Luke, we were already really into disco. I think Jim was, uh, Jim's always been more of a kind of indie 
kid or, or sort of like house music. I think since we started Horse Media Disco, that's when he started to get into it. But in, um, in terms of me and Luke, we've all, I mean, my dad was a DJ in the 70s and 80s. So I grew up with a lot of those records being in the house and stuff. And my dad sort of turntables were set up in the, in the dining room and his sound system and stuff. So I remember listening to a lot of that when I was young and I'd, I'd invent a gang that I had with, with no members apart from a few teddy bears. And we'd listen to records and like that would be our club anthem. I think it was um, State of Independence Donna Summer was our was our club anthem because I loved it so much. But yeah, that, I've always been a big disco fan. Even at school, I was an unrepentant disco fan and probably got beaten up a lot for it. It was hard, hard Somerset. You know, growing up in the sticks in Somerset was rough. Yeah, I think Sevy was quite into it. He had quite eclectic taste because he'd been a DJ since the 80s in Italy. And so he grew up around all that sort of Afro, that's what they call cosmic in Italy, they call it Afro. So he kind of knew all that sort of Afro stuff. And I was always into it as well. I mean, I used to play disco and house when I started, I guess I started DJing in about 1990 at Queer Nation, which was at the Gardening Club. And Harvey, DJ Harvey's night was on Friday and we did Sunday. So I was good friends with him and Heidi. And I used to go and listen to Norman Jay and people like that. And so I got turned on to a lot of music by Norman, by Harvey. And disco records were like 50p when I moved to London. No one wanted to buy them from the record and tape exchange. So, yeah, I've, I've always sort of been into it, really. And it seems with Horse Meat, you know, it's a very much been inspired by, you know, the 80s scene of New York and what have you. But was that just more an imagined ideal or was it, you know, something that you got in contact with personally? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it was around the time that I was um, I was working at Newphonic Records and it was around the time that we'd done all those compilations, the Loft compilations. And I was working with Adam Goldstone. Um, who's based out in New York and stuff as well. So uh, it, it was just at a time when I was kind of really discovering, oh, I used to work at Strut as well. And that was around the time they put out the Paradise Garage compilation. So in, in my sort of first few sort of forays into working in record labels, it was all around the time that, you know, they were doing all these sort of disco comp compilations, which was great because that's what I really loved. So, so yeah, that was kind of, you know, cues were sort of taken from there really because, you know, it was the main place where or a lot of the music that I was really into was kind of made legendary or, you know, so, yeah. What was the question again? <laughs> well, I don't think there really was a follow-up. You answered it really well. But um, I guess the kind of idea of like an imagined ideal, but, yeah. you know, I, I think that makes I absolute think sense. I was sort of back, yeah, when I first started be being a DJ, I was quite obsessed with the idea of Studio 54 and the Paradise Garage and... I guess it was before the internet so you kind of it was all word of mouth so when I used to go to New York I used to go to the shelter which was where Timmy Regisford used to play and it was about 91 and um, it was where all the sort of garage heads used to go and basically from about sort of 6 or 7 a.m. till closing at midday or 1 1 p.m. he would just play back-to-back -back classics and so being in that environment and seeing everybody react the way that they did and singing along and and it was only like i guess three or four years since the garage had closed so they were still like i talked to a lot of people there and they were still talking about the garage and and i'd never heard anyone mix disco better than timmy regisford fyi <laughs> and yeah so that i guess that was what inspired me going there and going to the sound factory and because you would get classics at the sound factory as well so yeah 
One thing I really uh, love that you've said before, Luke, is that British people kind of are obsessed about disco and obsessed about scenes that they might not have lived through. It's almost like a stamp collector's thing. I find that really interesting, you know, that, you know, you guys, for example, weren't there first time around, but you've really, you know, faithfully oh, he done. Was. <laughs> <laughs> but you see what I mean? You kind of, you know, you've really kind of lived through it. And I think that's a lot of the same with British collectors and, you know, Northern yeah, well, Soul I, I, and that I, kind I of think, thing. I think there's definitely something to be said about sort of the British, British tastes has always been quite you know, ready to accept a lot of sort of black American music whilst the mainstream in America probably wasn't taken up. I mean, it was people like Dusty Springfield who brought, you know, Motown to the UK and, you know, the Motown sound became big and that, you know, through that really the whole Northern Soul thing. So I think there's definitely a much bigger appreciation for black music here than maybe, there, you know, there was, especially in sort of like white circles in the States anyway. So, yeah, I mean, you know, and a lot of musicians will will, will attest to that as well by saying, yeah, you know, people like Kid Creole, whose career in, in Europe and the UK was much bigger than it ever was in America. You know, even Delight, to a certain extent, kind of had much bigger success over in, in the UK than they did in America. I guess English people, well, British people just want to dance and want to have a good time and probably weren't caught up in the whole sort of, you know, politics of what was happening in America in the 70s, I guess. So uh, just spinning forward a bit, what was the gay nightclub scene in London like before you started Horsemeat Disco? Uh, I'll leave that one for you to talk about, Luke. Well, the gay nightlife scene in London has always had really good bits and kind of other more commercial, generic clubs playing quite generic music and often in quite a very, in quite a druggy environment. So yeah, it's it's sort of always been like that, really. And I think when Horsemeat started, there was the whole what's that genre? No, what's that? Um, elect, there was the electro clash thing happening. So there was clubs like the Cock and Nag Nag Nag. So there was this kind of alternative thing where people were getting a bit more experimental and they were looking to the past a bit. And then you've always had like indie nights in in London and on the gay scene like Ducky and Pop Stars, where they would be a much more eclectic. And then you've got the kind of generic. Boysy sort of clubs where the muscle boys take their shirts off and they play kind of circuit music and then you have a few sort of other genres catered to like R&B Queer Nation was a sort of New York house club so you know it was as it is today a mixture but the bigger clubs tended tend to be more circuity and then the smaller clubs cater to more sort of eclectic tastes so I don't know if that answers your question. I'm it, trying to be very uh, diplomatic. <laughs> There's no need for diplomacy here. We're yeah, all Yeah, basically it was really rubbish before we came along. We basically saved the gay scene because, you know, without us, it would, <laughs> it would basically be, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an analogy, but it would be awful. But I guess the question I, I, I really wanted to ask was, was horse meat, disco and the use of disco a reaction to anything? specifically um, or was it just something that you wanted to well, do it was just music that we really loved and you know i mean it's not rocket science playing disco music to gay people is hardly sort of like you know it's not very experimental it's like you know it's going to work so um but then again why wasn't more people doing it then well i guess it just wasn't in fashion i mean well they've always, they've always been sort of like these kind of disco clubs but for a long time they're sort of like those disco clubs were like where you go and put your flares on and your kind of your afro wig and you'd go down and sort of dance to gloria Gaynor. whilst whilst that's fine i don't have a problem with that but like for me and for us in general disco was you know it was more than just being cheesy music it was like we actually you know the music was is very sophisticated and we just wanted to kind of put that across really so it was just kind of taking our love of music and and you know bringing that to people I actually did do a few nights where we played disco, like back 
way back when we had this night called Studio 76. And I think it was, I can't remember what night of the week it was, but me and Jeffrey Hinton used to do it. And it was at a club called Pandemonium, which became Bar Industria. So we had a night there, but it didn't, it never really took off. And then I did it. There was a club called Coco Latte and downstairs they used to play kind of more sort of circuity house and they had a bar upstairs and I used to get booked to play in that bar and play disco. So, I mean, there was always like maybe little bits of it. And then on the gay scene in London, there's always been the kind of like sort of R&B sort of crowd as well. And that often you'd hear kind of classics maybe as well. So, you know, there's always been a little bit. It's not like it was unheard of. So when you first got together, was it all, was there any kind of master plan involved or was it more like just let's no, sketch it out on the back no. of a fag packet and see what happens? That. It was just like, well, I mean, the name came along first, really. I was uh, looking in a, well, cleaning my house and there was like a stack of newspapers and the headline was horse meat discovered in salami. It was covered over. So it just said horse meat disco. And that was it. It was like, that's a great name for a club. So we'd already done a few sort of little parties here and there. And I got kicked out of the venue that we were at before. And this, this name came up as like, God, we've got to run with this. I mean, let's just, just do a few parties. And, and we did. And, you know, I think it was pretty, you know, right place, right time, a lot of luck. And that's kind of really where it kind of sort of spiraled from really. I mean, like there was no master plan or, you know, all of us just wanted a party where we could play music that we really liked and knew that other people would like it too. You know, like I said before, it's not like, it's not rocket science. It's not exactly challenging the crowd. I think it was sort of the right time and the right place had a lot to do with it because it wasn't kind of like, right, we're going to do this night and it's going to be, you know, there wasn't a formula. But I think one of the things that helped it was when we moved to the Eagle, it was the first party that we did there was New Year's Day. And there weren't that many things actually 10 years ago or 11 years ago, however long ago it was, there wasn't that many parties on New Year's Day for some reason back then. It was all about New Year's Eve. Now there's tons of things on New Year's Day. But there was nothing on on New Year's Day. And basically, everybody showed up that was still up from the night before or whatever. And it just kind of, it's just sort of happened, didn't it? It just, it just ended up being this really brilliant, fun party. And I think someone, you know, the smoke machine got left on or something. So it just, you know, it just went crazy, didn't it? And also the, there was another DJ called DJ Rock that was booked to DJ after me and he didn't show up. I was sort of running out of records and so I just ended up playing things that I may not have played normally and so it kind of made it a bit more eclectic and maybe played things that I didn't think people would get into and what were those things I don't know just like I mean definitely running up that hill was one of them by Kate Bush but then yeah and I had this CD and it had these like medleys that I'd done for this fashion show and so it was all kind of like mashups of not mashups but like little mixes of sort of eight minutes long that you know that had like chic and michael jackson and blondie and things like that on it and so i just ended up having to play them and so it just it just kind of yeah it just kind of worked didn't it it was just good fun i think as well it was um you know, a lot of the people that came were people who hadn't been out clubbing or sort of felt that like the gay scene had sort of like got away from them as you know, slightly older queens, I suppose. And I, I think they just sort of, you know, realized, like, oh, this is the music that we used to dance to. And it's just so nice to kind of find somewhere that we sort of feel that we belong. And I think that's kind of part of how successful it became is that people would really, you know, genuinely rave. I mean, they still do. People rave about it. And, you know, it's, uh, it's great. So spinning back a little bit before you moved to the Eagle, can you describe the very first horse meat disco party? 
Um, the very first Horse Meat Disco party was in a, uh, in a basement in Chinatown, which at the time was called Flip. Uh, I think it was under the polar bear. It was called Flip. And, you know, it was, it, it was well attended. We had some good people come and play. It was, it was a funny venue. It had like metal floors and stuff. It was corrugated iron floor. But I remember we had some, it was very eclectic back then. We were sort of finding our feet. I mean, although it was kind of rooted in sort of disco, there was, you know, a lot of the DJs we had come and play would play, you know, really across the board. But it was definitely a great place to kind of start, you know, and it was a Thursday as well. So it was a different day of the week. But, you know, it, it had a certain amount of success. Like the first party was really good. The second wasn't too bad. Then it sort of tailed off a little bit. And then the owners decided that they wanted to turned it into a straight venue and said that we could stay, but we'd have to change the name, change the artwork. And so um, jog on. Yeah. And then we kind of were in the wilderness for a while. And then we decided we'd do a New Year's Day party. It, well, it was Dukes then, wasn't it? Which was amazing. It was like a proper boozer, like flock wallpaper, carpet, but it had this amazing reggae sound system. Like, I don't know how many megawatts it was, but it was booming. And in, in a, t- you know, in a small wooden kind of structure, it just rattled. It was immense. And I think that's why it was so good because everything sounded really good on that sound system, didn't it? So it was kind of like hearing things that you may have heard before or whatever, and then hearing them on a really good system because it did have like had really good tweeters and stuff, didn't it? Good, good bass, but good mids. Everything was like sounded so good, and I think hearing stuff on that it just it lifted the party so much. And yeah, we had that sound for quite a while, but then it got taken out, didn't it? I think the neighbours complained. <laughs> It took them a while. I mean, we had it for like a good few years, sort of three or four years before like they told us that, uh, hell no. <laughs> Which is very unusual in London in such a, you know, compact space to kind of get away with that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, at the time there wasn't really much, there probably wasn't anyone living up across there. I mean, the only people that would live next door back then, I think they were sort of like, I don't know, I don't know probably drug addicts. I think they were, I think there was like a drug uh, like a meth house next door, or, yeah, or a DOS house next door. So they were quite easy to keep quiet. So, of course, one of the things that, you know, I really think of when I think of Horse Meat Disco is the amount of colourful characters you kind of get there. But, you know, was that from the word go? Like, I read a story that, you know, on the, one of the first ones, there was a guy that rang up and was said he would come and come naked. And you weren't expecting it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God, I remember, like, he called up and it was quite cagey. He was like, oh, you know, what's on tonight? Oh, it's Horse Meat Disco. Is there a dress code? No, you can wear whatever you want. Can I come naked? Sure. Why not? <laughs> I, I mean, I thought he was joking and um, it certainly saved on having to pay for a turn that night, you know. And he's been coming ever since and people like really kind of look forward to seeing him. And he's a super lovely guy. He's a poet. He's very talented. And I, th- I think the great thing about sort of disco music is it's quite a leveler and it kind of attracts all kinds of people. And and for me, that's always what a good party is about. It's not about being surrounded by people who look like you or who are the same as you. It's about being thrust into a situation where you're surrounded by people from different, I don't know, different origins, different social backgrounds. That's, you know, that that's why those parties like at Studio 54, Paris Garage or things like that were quite sort of legendary or, or Pyramid Club because they just kind of attracted all kinds of people. And for me, that's what makes a good party. Well, of course, your slogan is the queer party for everyone. Yeah, exactly. And we still stick with that. I mean, uh, I, I think it's... It's kind of important in this day and age to kind of at least be open-minded. I think there, there was a time and quite naturally where people like gay people just wanted to be in gay clubs, but I think we're sort of, sort of past that to a certain extent now. And I think it's good to have, you know, I think I, I love it when straight people come down. I mean, I think that's the thing. It's like if straight people are prepared to come to a gay club, then we should be prepared to accept them as a community because, you know, you know, that's what equality is, isn't it? That's what it's about. 
So just moving on a little bit, how does it work with four DJs in the group? You know, all got different egos, I imagine, different things they want to play. Is oh, that no, tricky to kind no, of run no with egos. that? no egos. No, we're all very kind of supportive of each other and very, you know, very nurturing. No, there's no... <laughs> yeah, I know, it's bull. No, I mean, no, it, it works out pretty well. I mean, the, the, actually, there really isn't that much ego between us all. We get on and, you know, I think what's really good is that we all come to disco through different kind of routes so it's really important to kind of have that to kind of bring so otherwise if we were just all coming in from the same angle there'd be no kind of difference really and and there is you know at least there's a different sort of sound what i play to what luke plays to what jim plays and sevi plays so i think it's really important and is, have you ever had a situation where you know one of you really wants to take a certain gig or anything like that is it a case of rock paper scissors or <laughs> it's a bit like a kind of disco conclave it's a little bit like choosing a pope it's very secret and we can't really go into it <laughs> so is there a sense of a uh, dynamism between what you guys play though you know you said you've got different stuff like i read used to you know luke and james play slightly older stuff and sevi plays stuff and uh jim plays slightly newer stuff would that be right to say that or yeah probably um i think we we definitely cross over where we there's stuff we all like or, and that we all play but yeah i think jim and sevi are much more in, into new music and I am a little bit, but I'm not. I'm not kind of obsessed with it, and I'm more, much more obsessed with collecting old music. So I think James and I are the kind of crate diggers as far as like disco goes or soul. But I mean, we all kind of bring our own thing, and we sort of mix, try and mix it up, you know. Because also, Sevi's got the whole Italian thing going on from the whole Baldelli, you know. So he knows all that sort of music and. James also speaks Italian and I go to Brazil a lot and I speak Portuguese. So I like Brazilian, I'm, I'm, I like collecting Brazilian music. So we all have our own thing going on really. Well, one thing I did want to speak to you about, Luke, is um, I guess sleaze or morning music, which is kind of a disco subgenre that you kind of champion a little bit on your SoundCloud. And I know it's very much a sound that's involved with Horsemeat Disco. Can you just explain what that is as well? Well, I think it's it's what they used to play at the end of the night at the Saint, pretty much. That's kind of, you know, the DJ would slow it down and maybe the last hour or so would be, or a couple of hours would be after the sort of frenetic 135 BPM for like eight hours, people need to kind of like rest a bit. So, And the Saint was the New York club Nicky Siano DJed in the 80s, was it? No, it wasn't Nicky Siano. Okay. It, it was Robbie Leslie and Jim Burgess, plus quite a few other residents. And it was, yeah, it was an 80s. It was a big club. It was in a, a big sort of old bank, I think. And it had a, a major like light show, a sort of almost like a planetarium light show. And it was men only as well. It was sort of like, I suppose some people would say it was kind of like the white version of the garage. The music was definitely kind of more euro and and kind of it wasn't such a soulful sound it was more the the boys town or the high energy music that got played there and i think yeah so jim burgess was probably the one who was like the the king of sleaze and actually some of the like robbie leslie when we met him he said i don't like to call it sleaze i call it morning music because sleaze kind of sounds like it's something dirty and it's actually not it's often very pretty music and it's sort of often very heartfelt there's a lot of kind of broken heart songs um in that sort of canon i suppose like phyllis hyman um 
loving you losing you things like that by phyllis hyman so yeah it's kind of a lot of heartbreak sort of stuff but it's slow it can be as slow as kind of 80 bpms up to make i mean nothing over 120 really and so it just it's something that yeah we've sort of become a bit obsessed about like and also just finding tracks that maybe weren't played there but really fit into that genre because there's a kind of canon from the saint really of of sleaze but there are yeah often we find things and we think well that's a total sleaze record even though it may not have been played there or a morning music record as robbie leslie likes to call it and actually yeah they a lot of people come up to me and say oh i really like those mixes so they're obviously they obviously touch a, a nerve for a lot of people because people you know and a lot of people say oh we play at my wedding and me and my wife love your mixes and so yeah it's kind of it's nice well, well i think it's interesting for me personally it's just because it's it's a subgenre an area of music that's not very much discussed in in a lot of the kind of the history of disco and things like that and because it's the more soulful less you know dancey side of it it's often records that were overlooked on albums and things like that you know yeah and especially like you know since i've been buying music you know you, you'd buy an album you'd buy it for the kind of the hits on there and then you'd like you sort of scan through it and there'd be like this really slow thing you think oh that's horrible and then like years later you're kind of going back over and go oh my god that's amazing yeah and like bobby vitaritti who played at the trocadero transfer who's become a friend of ours and he lives in new york now and like sometimes he'll play me a sleaze track and it's it's almost like a ballad i mean there's hardly any beat at all and it's it's kind of almost like for slow dancing too yeah, yeah so it's just a, a set of end of the night records one after the other. It's just, that's kind of really what it is. So talking about some of your guests at Horsemeat Disco, you know, you've had so many. Just you two personally, what would be a favourite if you had to pick one right now? Uh, I mean, I always love it when Daniele Baldelli plays. He's one, he's one of my favourite DJs and we've had him about three or four times and we've been on the bill with him other places, but he's just so unique and so interesting. And, you know, he's sort of the only person who can play a night of music I've never heard, but yet it still be really kind of engaging and really exciting. And, and then for months afterwards, I'm like, hunting down those records you know based on the fact because he plays things at the wrong speed based on the fact that there's a snippet where i know what the word was and it's amazing the internet you, you know even that much can lead you to find a record i liked it when bobby played because that's like he's a bit of history gay disco history and i also really like prince thomas actually he i always love what he plays we haven't had him down for a while but in the early days he used to play quite regularly and he does a good set and often, you know, finishes it nice and slowly. And he's not afraid to play something commercial as well. Like, you know, he's not just someone who's going to play everything underground that no one's heard of. You know, he he checks the dance floor and keeps it going. So I like him. And also Thomas used to DJ in a gay club. And um, so he kind of get he gets it like pretty more than most other people. I mean, the, the one thing that it always makes me laugh is how nervous people get when they come and play at the club, like it's kind of, it's quite endearing. It's pretty, I mean, it's amazing that all these kind of grand dams of the DJ scene suddenly like sort of become quivering wrecks like five minutes before they're going on. And, you know, it's, it's nice that we can have that kind of effect on people, but like, most of the time they don't have to worry. And that's amazing for, you know, for a gig, which is essentially in a pub, you know, these, yeah, these yeah. people that are used to playing in front of thousands of people. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, our crowd can be quite, you know, if they don't like it, they'll let you know. If they don't like it, they'll go out, out in the garden and have a cigarette, won't they? Is is there sometimes a very quick reaction to someone they don't like? Um, is it a crowd that will give someone a chance? or um... Generally, but yeah, if you don't play Donna Summer within the first five records, then you're probably going to get murdered. <laughs> 
It depends what kind of night it is, to be yeah. honest. On a bank holiday, you can pretty much get away with anything because it's packed and it's, you know, and everyone is just really up for it. And the dance floor is like, you know, because there's nowhere else to really move, the dance floor is always busy. If it's kind of a slower night and, you know, after 11 years, you know, there are some sort of um, slightly slower nights. And that that's kind of when the crowd just probably want to hear the classics and things. If you happen to have a guest on it that, you know, is a kind of coincidence, then it can be really hard. It can be really difficult for them. But we, I've never, you know, I've never felt the need to have to jump on and sort of rescue someone. I just like to sort of watch them squirm, really. But no one's ever really felt that badly, have they? No, actually, the crowd, they they usually go with it. You know, you might get a few people that complain to the to Omar and Simon on the door because they haven't heard all the records that they are used to hearing. But usually, people just go with it. By midnight, they're all all dancing. One set that I did want to mention, and it's still talked about on disco forums. I don't know listeners out there will probably think, you know, what nerds? There is yeah. such a thing. <laughs> um, but Mark Seven's set, you know, was seems to oh, be oh the salute to the men of Oxford. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. That was like a three hour, and that had quite a lot of sleaze at the end of it. Morning music because he's kind of another really great sort of researcher of of sleaze and stuff. So yeah, that that was great. I remember a whole summer. I think I listened to nothing but that mix, and uh, you know depending on what mood I was. It was usually the last CD, which was my favorite, which had things like that, Nicolette Larson. And that was quite fun trying to hunt down all those. Because at the time I didn't know any of those records and then kind of saw a bit by bit, you start to find them. And, and that was, yeah, that was quite a fun summer. So you guys are obviously both crate diggers. You just sometimes get people along whose record collection you like more or less than with the case of someone like Mark Seven or... Yeah, I guess so. I mean, people that, yeah, that we know who are into... It and and maybe they've been into it for a, a long time yeah like felix for instance he's always got great music hasn't he so whenever he's done it felix dickinson he's always got some nice surprises up his sleeve yeah and we booked someone um we met him at glastonbury last year it's this guy called greg belson he's from la and he basically just like a lot of sets of gospel sort of gospel disco music so we booked him not quite sure how that's Gonna go down, but I mean, it was the best set that I heard at Glastonbury last year. So, if he can recreate that, I'm sure it'll go down well. But yeah, you know, I mean, we've we've had a lot of sort of DJs who've sort of who are big names and some ones that aren't so sort of big. But you know, I think it's just really important to have people like that come and play because you know, not only does it keep the club fresh, but it kind of also turns us onto a lot of new music and stuff. And I think if you don't have that, then you can get quite staid and not, you know, you know not want to go out digging and stuff. You get quite reliant on your own record collection but it's always great to have people to like you know turn you on to music and to be fair one of the first places i ever heard about horsemeat disco was through a dj who'd played there talking about it so it was that a big factor in the success oh, of it spreading i mean i think that's the only reason why it kind of spread so much because i mean especially you know you've got a lot of djs who love disco and they tend to be mostly straight and it's a kind of fantasy of theirs to have played in a gay disco at some point and this is their chance to kind of to kind of do it so that they come they have an amazing time and they go away and they spread the new you know they spread the word and tell other people how you know how amazing and how such a great time they had and the reaction that they got from the crowd and stuff so yeah you know it's um it's definitely been i think at the beginning how the the word sort of spread and how our name kind of got out there because we weren't releasing any music and we, we still don't really release that much music so it's, it really is word of mouth based on you know how much fun people have at the club daniel wang's sets at the club have been something of legendary and he's been one of your biggest advocators you know online yeah. and all over how did you first meet daniel i met daniel when i was working at newphonic um and i think i don't know if he ever put anything out on newphonic but he was definitely kind of part of that kind of world that sort of like new disco sort of thing and the kind of um 
early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, I guess it was. Um, and I remember he came in and we we really bonded really quickly on the fact that both of us speak several languages. We're both linguists. And and yeah, I mean, like Danny's instantly lovable and you can't, you, you just, you know, you just want to be his friend. And you just want to hang out with him as much as you could. And that's what it was. And that's where our friendship kind of grew from. Yeah, I mean, Danny is a total disco nerd, isn't he? And he's a sound nerd as well. And yeah, he's he's got a real passion and his interest in music is sort of, it runs much deeper than just, you know, he's really interested in how music is made and the music of the 70s. And he's a super, like, interesting person, really bright, really intelligent. And also he always has been a sort of champion of like, don't just fantasize about clubs that you never went to, make your own club. So that's why I think he has always really liked what we do, because it's like, well, we're doing it. We just we just made a you know we just happened to do it. I mean, there's no formula. You just have to have fun and invite your friends, and that's what he always says. It's like don't just obsess about getting every record that was ever played at the the garage or whatever or the loft. Just go out and have fun and and, and play some records, you know. And I, so that's why I think he loves coming to play. And also he's he's turned us onto a lot of records as well, hasn't he? He always has some surprises up his sleeve, and he's like a little I don't know. He's like a a disco wizard that always has something. Disco fairy. Disco fairy, exactly. Was there a real point when you noticed, hang on, disco's getting really popular now? Because of in course of the time that you've been doing this, you know, it's disco's almost gone from a dirty word in club music to yeah, something which is in every bar and up and down the country. Yeah, I mean, there, there definitely was a, a moment when I noticed. I, I guess it's when we were getting quite a lot of um, sort of press attention and things. But I guess the, it really kind of started happening around the time of Hercules and Love Affair's first album. I think that was when everyone started to kind of catch on to it. I mean, I remember actually quite soon after we started Horse Meat Disco, there was like the kind of things to look out for next year. And, it, you know, they were sort of talking about disco and things. So it's really weird. I'm not sure if we were really in, that instrumental in kind of starting it. Because in, in my sort of opinion, like it's, it's always really been around. Like when I first moved to London, a lot of the clubs were playing disco and it wasn't that different. There were, you know, few and far between, but a lot of the DJs that I knew, people like um, the Idjit Boys and a lot of people who were sort of working from Newphonic and stuff would always be playing disco. Or I see Derek May had always dropped some Sylvester if he was playing. So, you know, it wasn't sort of unheard of. But, but weirdly enough on the gay scene, I guess it's just kind of, there wasn't really any, apart from, I don't know, probably some cheesy jukebox in some sort of spit and sawdust bar or something like that but yeah and of course you know the success of not just disco but the party itself has allowed you to go on to do residencies in berlin and there's been like especially the parties at tape they sounded fantastic can you describe what they were all about uh, I mean, they were amazing. I mean, Tape was such a, a great club. And the guys who run Tape, actually, uh, Yoni and Uli, which Tape's not around anymore, but they really became our like Berlin family. And we wouldn't really consider doing anything there without them. And I think Uli's about to give birth very, very soon. So she's listening to this and she's given birth. Well done, girl. Yeah, Tape was a really special club because it wasn't, it was a sort of destination club in Berlin. And also, when we started doing our night, there wasn't that many places that weren't playing techno or people thought of Berlin as being a sort of techno place. And yeah, some, it just suddenly became people people showed up every month and we still do it every two months at another venue called the Prince Charles and it's still really busy and full of fine, Berlin's finest gay boys. <laughs> yeah, it was strange. I remember playing in Berlin you know, well before we started doing our residency and like no one wanted to, no one gave me the time of day for playing disco. I was too black apparently. 
Danny, actually, that's what Danny said to me. It's like, oh, you were too black. You were giving them too much Ashford and Simpson. But I, I, I guess it, that kind of whole sort of minimal thing probably just got a bit saturated after a while and and people just wanted something a little bit different. I think that's the thing with Berlin. It's, it's a very nihilistic city and the music has always been quite nihilistic, whether it's been sort of like post-industrial or, you know, techno, it's always been quite sort of heavy. And I guess some people just want something a bit more, I don't know, something a bit lighter. And yeah, I think once we've, you know, from the first time I played in Berlin where it went down like a lead balloon to when we first did like the first couple of parties that would become a residency, it was quite amazing how things suddenly changed and um, and how, how long, you know, it's, we've been doing it five years now, haven't we? So, you know, it's quite amazing that we've managed to kind of, you know, maintain that for five years and it still be absolutely packed every time we do it. So basically it's just a lot of fortuitous timing as um, as well as anything else. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's that's pretty much the kind of overriding factor in everything we've done. It's kind of the right place at the right time. You know, obviously we've you know we've put everything, our heart and souls, into it. But I think at the end of the day, a lot of it was down to a lot of luck, and so that's why I touch wood everywhere I go. And it's um, really interesting for me, you know, uh, how, you know, your message is pretty much spread around the world. You know, the guys at Honey Sound System say they're directly inspired by you guys. That must be a pretty edifying thought to think that you've actually inspired a lot of parties around the world as well. Yeah, I'd be able to die knowing that I've left my mark on this world and therefore be very happy about it. But no, it's, you know, obviously it's great to hear people sort of like quote us. I never really quite know how to sort of react when people start sort of blowing smoke up your bum. But um, it's quite a nice feeling. You love it. I think the most amazing thing for me, actually, I would have to say is DJing in New York because we play there about four or five times a year. Whenever there's a holiday on a Monday, we do a Horsemeat Disco party that's promoted by Josh Wood in New York, either Cielo or Output. And that, to me, is the most incredible thing about the whole Horsemeat Disco story because it's like New York, to me, is the it's the mothership of disco. It's like where it all began. It's where it comes from. So being able to play there and to have a crowd that really love it and, you know, it's just an absolute honour, it really is. And not only that, to have, like, DJs kind of come in the booth, like um, Danny Crivet, Ted Patterson, people like this, and kind of say, oh, it's amazing. You know, it does feel a little bit like kind of selling snow to Eskimos. I think in the beginning, we're so nervous because it's like, God, you know, how are we going to get this over? But I think for a long time, sort of New York club land was pretty much decimated. So actually, you know, that sort of like period of the 90s where Giuliani was empowered and kind of really killed nightlife in New York. It was just on the kind of the, the recovery out of that. So... It kind of just, uh, again, sort of right place at the right time. And, you know, it was like a good 10 years where there really wasn't much happening in New York underground club land. And uh, yeah, right time, right place. Well, let's be honest, being in New York and getting Danny Cravit in the booth as a disco DJ, it's not getting much better than that, right? No, or, or any less panicky, to be honest. I think I was totally shaking. And then he asked me for what a track was. So I, I gave him the CD. I was like, have it. It's yours. If you like it, you can have it. So it was nice. But it is amazing the amount of love that we get when we go to New York. It's, it's, it's quite overwhelming. And we always leave kind of really, really on a high that, you know, you know, we can sort of, in a way, sort of be pioneers in a city where it's all been done before. You know, it's kind of, you know, sort of being in, you know, going to shops and sort of people sort of recognizing you, you know, I've had that a couple of times, like going to New York. It's really strange. I mean, like, I never believed, you know, in a million years that that would be the sort of reaction that we got from someone like New York. I mean... You know, it, like Luke said, it's an honour. Just to talk about the compilation for a second, though, 
it must be quite a challenge to try and distill what is essentially a four or five hour night into a CD. Like, how do you even approach that? You know, we were talking about morning music earlier. High energy is so much into I th- that. I think we just we just don't really sort of try and condense anything. We just try and do a, a good mix for an hour. I mean, it, it, it's hard. I mean, with the sort of fact that licensing tracks is not easy, especially if you're on a on an independent label. You know, a lot of those disco records as well. They're up, they're owned by majors, so it's kind of it is hard to sort of pick the stuff that we really really want. But luckily, we're diggers, so we can you know we can really sort of dig into the records and find all those sort of independent things and luckily there's some sort of really great unknown sort of rare independent kind of stuff that we can license it's just a question of like you know really digging in our collections finding those tracks and then trying to kind of create something out of them really if you could license anything you know was it was there some real awesome disco anthems that you would have wanted to put i mean i there? think we would have always wanted to maybe um license something but you know by people like donna summer i mean like some of the the, the tunes that really define the club like was that all it was gene khan lucky donna summer which we actually did an edit of but we can't put it on because we can't get the licensing you know some sharon red ashford and simpson shaka khan things like that would be great to put on it because you know some people might get the idea that a lot of you know our sets are just really obscure and stuff and it's really you know that's pretty much the stuff that we can license um it would be really lovely to get our hands on some sort of some licensing catalogs from places like Universal or Warner's or something like that because you know a lot of the disco was quite commercial and you know we're sort of precluded in a way from putting any of that on our compilations which is a real shame but you know we, we you know we're still really proud of them regardless and if you want to hear those classics you can easily come down any Sunday and hear them. So can you just briefly run through some general horsemeat disco highlights? Hmm the popper piñata was quite a good one we did like this kind of mexican theme party when, when when we were really into doing themes and could be bothered to go out and get decorations and tart the place up a little bit but yeah we got some we got a pinata with a what can we put in it and there were loads of bottles of poppers at the pub because we sell poppers as well so we just put loads of them and not thinking for a minute that you got to smash the pinata with a big bloody baseball bat so we just filled the pinata with poppers and just the poppers just smashed everywhere and i remember our friend mel he's like it's quite demure Chinese girl to be carried out at one point. It was quite an intense 10 minutes on the dance floor, let's just say that. We had a drag pageant, a, a ball, a kind of, it, we called it a Vogue ball, but it wasn't really a Vogue ball because no one was really voguing. I think two people maybe Vogued. But that was super fun the first time we did that because we didn't really think anyone would show up or be bothered and it was absolutely packed, wasn't it? Everyone was waiting to be entertained by and we had categories and that was really insane the first the first couple actually and then we did one elsewhere didn't we and we even had that judge from um strictly as a judge you had a strictly come dancing judge yeah and not not any and we had crave Revel hallwood as one of the judges and that was super fun and super funny and yeah that was a lot of fun yeah, the Vogue balls were great because I remember when we first started doing horse meat, people would go, oh, you should do a ball, you should do a ball. Because I mean, you know, we were all as gay men obsessed with Paris is burning. Well, if you're not obsessed, then you're worthless, really. But yeah, so we were kind, of, we kind of wanted to kind of pay homage, and it really was a homage. It wasn't like kind of trying to kind of imitate. It was just kind of like, you know, just a chance for us all to really dress up and just prance around like idiots, which um, has pretty much hasn't ceased, has it really? Didn't you once do a small festival where you had a lot of that kind of action going? The, the milk. In the oh, we park did a milk. In, yeah, milk in the park. That was really nice. That was actually just opposite the Eagle. Um, Mark Oakley, the owner of the Eagle, wanted to do something sort of tying around the sort of you know sort of memory of um, Harvey Milk, and, and that was great. We had Candy Staten. She came and, and sang and opened up. She got 
hit by a flying umbrella. It was like the, the calmest day of the year, not a cloud in the sky, but some sort of freak wind just picked up some, some bar umbrella and smashed her in the head with it. She still went on. She's a true professional. We had phase action play, crazy P, us DJing. I think we had, I can't remember the DJ, but that was a really fun day. One of the other things that I've loved that's kind of been part of the horse meat disco journey is the NYC download Glastonbury as well. That has been an amazing event every year. It's kind of like the best club in the world, isn't it, James? So we always go and do that, and we're a big, big part of that whole vibe. So. And can you just describe what that looks like for the people NYC, who probably don't know? The NYC download is a, it's a, it's like a film set basically of a a New York sort of bombed New York tenement building. It has a taxi crashed into the third floor. It has a sort of apartment that's kind of all bombed out with a bathroom, and then you kind of go down this sort of alley and then there's a club which is called the NYC Downlow and it's supposed to be like going back in time going to a sort of club in the East Village in the 70s or something like that and it's an so when you're when you see it it doesn't look like anything else at Glastonbury it's totally the the spec and the detail that they put into it is amazing I mean they even have a vintage massive advertisement hoarding poster on the side of it and they have like a booth where they sell mustaches because you have to get a mustache to go in and it's got like vintage gay porn in it and stuff like that and then inside when you're in it it's the spec is really high and you feel like you're in a club and it's just an amazing experience so it's been great to be involved in that yeah it's the best club in the world it's only open for sort of three or four days a year it's the way it should be and also it means that we can kind of both get our drag fixed for the years it, yeah the drag the drag bag comes out at glastonbury and it goes back after glastonbury and it doesn't really come out again but it's you know it's it's great to be part of a team of kind of hundreds of people really running you know involved in it in some way and it you know for me and, and i'm from glastonbury as well it's my home my home village pretty much so to have something like that and go home and have your sort of your old babysitter come down and wonder if you're a transsexual these days and you know it's great i absolutely love it and actually i think it's done so much you know for kind of acceptance of you know gays and transgender people i think is you know from my experience of going back to the country and sort of like talking to people they absolutely love it and you know where's years ago they would have been very kind of quite homophobic and quite transphobic about it they're actually really positive and uh, you know i really really do believe hand on my heart that the nyc download has done so much for kind of you know acceptance of kind of you know lgbt people and we're also lucky enough to have a radio show every sunday between 1 and 3 p.m plug plug on rinse fm and the rinse FM family have been so open to what we do, which has been a real surprise and a real joy and a pleasure because, you know, originally we just thought it was a sort of dubstep uh, station and they've been really into what we do and really supportive. So it's nice to kind of have that family as well to do our show and we really love doing it, don't we? Yeah, and also it's a way to kind of, you know, as we sort of said before, we're massive record collectors and it's not just sort of like peak time disco. It just means it's it's a kind of outlet to play all those kind of songs that we really love that you'd never be able to get away with playing in a club. Is you, you just have so much more freedom on the radio than you do in a nightclub to really kind of share the music that you really love. And, it, you know, that's it's it's still a really relevant and great medium radio, so it's great to, great to have it. And you've got a great face for radio as well, James. So do you, dear. 